Amen. You can be seated. This time the children can be dismissed for Children's Church. And if you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 38, Genesis chapter 38, I promise you we will finish series in Genesis at some point. I have just a few weeks left. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Aneum, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. He gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went her way, taking off her veil she put on, uh, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the man of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Aeneum at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, I have a few interesting facts for you. Did you know that there's a positive correlation between ice cream consumption and drowning? In other words, as ice cream consumption goes up, so does the occurrence of drowning. So if you don't want to drown, probably shouldn't eat ice cream. There's another interesting statistic. Statistics have proven that the less margarine you consume, the less likely you are to get divorced. Less margarine consumption equals less divorce. I have one more interesting statistic. There is a positive correlation between the sales of iPhones and the occurrence of people falling down the stairs to their death. So if you don't want to fall down the stairs to your death, do not think about buying an iPhone. Now you can probably sense the sarcasm in my voice as I tell these statistics, but the truth is they're true, essentially. There is a positive correlation between ice cream consumption and between drowning. But it's not that ice cream causes people to drown. There's other factors that are probably in play, like the fact that you eat ice cream more in the summer and you swim more in the summer. So obviously they would both go up in the summertime. If you ever took a introductory psychology or statistics class, one of the things they teach you uh, kind of the first thing they often teach you is that correlation doesn't automatically mean causation. Just because something is correlated with one another doesn't mean that it, they cause each other. Margarine use probably doesn't have much of an effect on divorce. iPhone sales probably doesn't have much of an effect on falling down the stairs unless you're texting and not paying attention. You might be familiar with the term uh, black widow murder. And this refers to when women will kill their partners or spouses. There's been a number of cases where someone, a wife will have a husband and then this husband will die of mysterious causes and then she'll get another husband and another husband will die in a similar way and she'll just keep getting more and more and then somewhere along the way they find out she's actually killing him, poisoning him or whatnot. It seems like that's kind of what's going on in this passage. It seems like we almost have a black widow situation. Because the men that are given to Tamar both end up mysteriously dead. But correlation doesn't automatically mean causation. Because it has nothing to do with Tamar, even though Judah might think that. It's completely dependent upon the people that she was involved with. The first person that he, she was given was named Er. And it says in the text that Er was evil or that he was bad. And the, the text kind of has a play on the word. It says that, that Er was Er. He kind of Er erred. That, in other words, uh, the Hebrew word is Er. And the word for evil is Ra. And it's the reverse spelling of his name. And so it's almost like saying Er erred. Now, we don't know exactly what he did, but we know that he must have done something that was pretty bad uh, because the Lord put him to death immediately. 
Uh, there's a lot of people in Scripture we see that have done a lot of bad things that they weren't put to death. So he must have done something that was pretty bad. So it says the Lord put him to death because he was wicked. And then Tamar is given another person. His name is Onan. And then we come into contact with a practice that is very strange and very bizarre to us as Western readers thousands of years after the event. And there was this practice that was called leveret marriage that happened uh, during this time frame. Lever meant a brother's wife. And the stipulations for leveret marriage were defined in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the idea of leveret marriage was if a man died and didn't have any children, he died childless, the next oldest brother, his brother, would be responsible for taking his wife, the widow, and marrying her and having children with her. And the first child that they would have would belong to the deceased brother. It would carry on his name and carry on his legacy. It's a strange practice to us, but that's what they practiced. Deuteronomy 25, verse 6 says this, And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. So the idea is that The brother would take his brother's widow and he would have a child with her so that his name and memory would live on, so that his name wouldn't be blotted out, so that he would have a heritage. I was trying to think of a parallel for today that we could maybe better understand than this kind of strange practice. And the closest thing that I could think of is when maybe somebody starts a foundation to preserve somebody's memory. I think of uh, quarterback Jim and Jill Kelly, um, how their son, Hunter, had Crab A's disease, and he passed away a, a number of years ago. But they have this organization called Hunter's Hope. And in a sense, his memory and his legacy lives on as they try to support people uh, whose children have genetic diseases and um, support newborn testing. And so it's kind of a way of his memory living on, even though he's no longer with us. And I think that's kind of the idea behind this idea of leverant marriage. So Tamar is given Onan, Judah's second son. Uh, and Onan doesn't complain about this. He doesn't argue with this. He takes Tamar. He has relations with Tamar, but he doesn't want to have a child with her. And you can read in the text how he prevents that from happening. Why doesn't he want to have a child with her? It says in the text that it's because it would belong to his brother. He didn't want to produce a child for his brother. But there was probably something else that was going on. He probably didn't want to have a child with her because if if he had a son, a male son, and the son belonged to his brother, that would reduce his share in the inheritance that Judah would give him. And so he refused to have a child with Tamar, even though he uh, took advantage of her. And so the Lord sees this also as evil and puts Onan to death. So Er has been put to death. Onan has been put to death. And there's one child left. His name is Shelah. And Judah is afraid that the same thing is going to happen to Shelah. He probably thinks that there's something wrong with Tamar that is making uh, his sons mysteriously die. 
We don't know for sure if he knew that the, the Lord had put them to death or not. But there's one son left, and he tells Tamar, just wait a while, just wait till Shelah gets a little bit older, and then you can have him as a, as a husband. But time goes on, and Shelah grows up, and Judah doesn't give uh, Shelah to Tamar. Tamar is sent away. She's sent away from Judah's household. He says, go back to your own family. Go back to your parents. Live as a widow. And so when this doesn't happen, Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. In the meantime, Judah's wife Shua dies, and Judah mourns for his wife Shua. And then he goes up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And Tamar gets this idea. She puts on a veil and she stands in the city gate of a place called Aneum, which was on the way to Timnah. And she was probably dressed as a prostitute. Judah passes by her, believing she's a prostitute. And we see that he's completely driven by the lusts of his flesh. He says, let me sleep with you. Let me come into you. And she says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a young goat. And she says, "What? give me a pledge. Give me some guarantee that you're actually going to do this. And he gives her his signet ring, his cord, his staff. A guarantee that he would actually do what he was going to say, what he said he was going to do. And so this agreement occurs and they go on their way. And then Judah sends back his messenger to find this prostitute, to give her the goat and to get his pledge back, but the messenger can't find this prostitute anywhere. Looks all over the countryside, asks somebody, he says, there's no cult prostitute like this around. We don't know what you're talking about. So he returns home to Judah, and Judah says, we better just let this go. Because we're going we're gonna to be made a laughing stock if we run around the whole countryside looking for this prostitute. So we better just let it go. And in the course of time, it becomes clear that Tamar is pregnant with Judah's child. And Judah is told about this pregnancy. He doesn't know, obviously, that it's his child. But he's told about this pregnancy. And the messenger comes and he tells Judah. He doesn't tell him just that Tamar is pregnant. He says, Tamar has been immoral. Or Tamar has played the harlot or played the whore. And then we see the most interesting and most shocking response in the whole passage. Judah says, bring her out and let us burn her to death. Bring her out and let us burn her. But the tables quickly get turned as Tamar sends out the signet ring, the staff, and the cord and says, the person who these belong to is the one who I'm pregnant with. And Judah is apparently cut to the heart and he says, she is more righteous than I am. It's a very bizarre passage, a very interesting passage. But what can we learn from a passage like this? A passage that is so different, that has these cultural elements that are so 
bizarre and so foreign to us. How can we apply this to our lives thousands of years later? I think we can apply it this way. I think we see a principle that applies in this passage and applies to a number of places in Scripture and also applies to human nature, and it's this. It's easier to condemn than it is to change. It's easier to condemn than it is to change. Jesus said something similar in Matthew chapter 7, verse, 30, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, uh, out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's much easier to discuss other people's problems than to talk about your own problems, than to focus on your own issues. We see this also in the story of Jesus when he's brought a woman in John chapter 8 who's caught in the act of adultery. Now remember, if this woman's caught in the act of adultery, there had to be two parties involved, but the woman is just brought before him. And the teachers of the law say to him, what shall we do to such a woman? The law says that we should stone her to death. Should we stone her to death? And Jesus says, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. It's easier to condemn than it is to change. According to Linda Gottlieb, psychotherapist, the practice of psychotherapy in the United States has gone drastically down in the last number of years. From from 1997 to 2008, the number of people receiving psychological help decreased by 30%. And there were many different reasons for this, but one reason that Gottlieb cited was the fact that many people don't want to focus on their own problems any longer. She says that many people would rather blame others for their problems than to do the hard work of trying to fix their own issues. They would see more and more people who would come in because they wanted someone else or something else to change. As one of Gottlieb's colleagues put it, I'd see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change myself. And so what therapists have been doing is they've been hiring rebranding consultants. Instead of saying, I treat anxiety or depression, they'll say, have you, are you having trouble with the difficult people in your life? Rather than identify as a psychotherapist, there's a more positive title as a happiness locator. Rather than talking about the hard work involved in changing yourself and examining yourself, now it's you'll feel empowered and have peace. Handling day-to-day struggles will be a breeze. It's easier to blame others than it is to change ourselves. I think Christians have often done this. Christians have often condemned and ostracized people who struggle with kind of the visible sins. Things that we can see. Things that we can point out. It's easy to focus on those things. 
Because we can see them. We can see them in other people. But meanwhile, sometimes we miss the things that are in our own heart. Maybe we ourselves are struggling with pride or greed or materialism. And nobody else can see that, but we can see the person who's struggling with drunkenness or promiscuity. And so we condemn them, but we don't change ourselves. Last week we talked about pride a little bit, and we talked about, I quoted C.S. Lewis who said that pride is about advancing oneself over somebody else. And I think that's what we do when we try to condemn somebody else. When we try to condemn somebody else, what does it do? It makes ourselves look better. At least I don't struggle with such and such. At least I've moved beyond that. At least I'm not as bad as so and so. And so when we condemn other people, we shift the blame to them and we miss what's broken in our own hearts. But when we do focus on our own faults and our own sins, we realize we're broken before the Father. We realize that we're sinners just like everybody else. But it's difficult. It's difficult to focus on our own issues. It's easier to focus on other people's issues. Our slogan that we've kind of adopted as a church is Jesus, is Jesus changes everything. What a shame would it be if we go out to the world and we claim that Jesus changes everything, but we don't allow him to change our own hearts. Say, so Jesus can change you. Jesus can change anything in your life. Jesus can bring you healing, but we don't allow him to bring healing to our own hearts. Here's a test for us. Some of us are here, and maybe we're thinking to ourselves, well, I wish so-and-so was here. I wish they were here because they are constantly condemning other people. I wish they were here. They need to hear this. Or I hope the person in the next row, or I hope the person even next to me is listening because I know they need to hear this. And I think when you do that, I think you're doing the same thing. Maybe they are condemning. Maybe they do need to change. But you're doing the same thing. You're focusing on their issue rather than the issue in your own heart. The truth is there's a lot of broken people in this world. There's a lot of messed up people, and there's probably a lot more messed up people than you. Probably a lot more people that need to change than you. But the truth is there's only one person that you're responsible for the one person that you can change, and that's yourself. It's easier to focus on other people's issues. We know that the only way that we can change is through the power of the gospel. Through God's power that he gives us through his Holy Spirit, because in the gospel there's a humility where we realize that we're all sinners, that we're all broken before the Father, that we're all in need of redemption. It's hard to confess our sin. It's hard to change. But in the gospel, and even in this story, we see that God is a God of great grace. That he welcomes us when we come to him. If you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, I'd like to show you something that I think is pretty remarkable and Pretty beautiful, really, when you think about it. 
Matthew chapter 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, remember Abraham, a pagan who God called. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the one who showed favoritism, who deceived Pharaoh. Isaac, the father of Jacob, who was the deceiver the one who was always passive, who would seemingly never stand up for what was right. And Jacob, the father of Judah, Judah who we see in this passage, who is unrighteous. Judah is the one who gets the idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar, Tamar of the passage we're looking at today, who deceived Judah and took matters into her own hands. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, who was a prostitute. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, who was a murderer. An adulterer. David was the father of Solomon, Solomon who turned away from God in his later years by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, who also did evil. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph. And then he goes on and on through a number of different kings. And then in verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So we see the deceiver. We see a prostitute, a murderer, an adulterer, the selfish and harsh Judah who was driven by desires of his flesh, the deceptive and sneaky Tamar. We see good kings. We see some really terrible kings. We didn't go through all the kings. Some good kings, some really terrible kings. And all of these people are in the line of the Messiah. God's own perfect, sinless son. All of these people are in his line. And it, make, it makes a point to show these people. It makes a point to point out Tamar. Now usually women weren't included in genealogies. But it points out Tamar and Rahab. It points out all these people who were people of ill repute. Now why would God send His Son through such a line? Why wouldn't He send His Son through a priestly class? A class of people who were perfect and righteous. I think God wanted to show that Jesus was coming for people who needed a physician. He was coming for people who were broken and who needed grace. Jesus was coming to be a savior for sinners. It speaks of the radical love, the radical grace of our God. Tim Keller says this about the gospel. In the gospel, we see that we're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. It's easier to condemn than it is to change But Jesus can change everything. 
Jesus can change everything because in the gospel we see that we can come to a perfect heavenly father, sin and all, with all of our brokenness, and that he accepts us and loves us and gives us the power to change. Because if we've accepted Christ, if we put our faith in Christ, faith and trust in Christ, he's already made us new. He's already wiped the slate clean. He's already declared us righteous. And what he, when we come to him, he's just making us into who he's already declared us to be. As we come to him, he just wants to conform us more and more to become like his son, to be like him, to represent him. Jesus can change everything by his grace. Living in Buffalo, most people will never forget what happened in the Super Bowl in 1990. The Bills were down by a couple of points. There was eight seconds left, and Scott Norwood got up to kick a field goal. And of course, we know that he kicked it and missed the field goal. And even after years and years, this was something that plagued Norwood. After 20 years, he described how he was feeling about this event. He said, sorrow, I guess, and disappointment in letting down the teammates that are there on the field of battle with you. I get choked up thinking about it, putting myself back in that situation. That's 20 years after the fact. And Scott Norwood likely wondered what would happen when he returned home to Buffalo. You know, they were, you know, away playing the Super Bowl. He wondered how would fans from Buffalo receive him? Would they be holding up signs and saying, cut Scott Norwood? Get rid of Scott Norwood. He's cost us the Super Bowl. How would they respond to him? I don't think he ever expected the response that he did get. When he did return home, he met 30,000 screaming fans, many of whom were screaming, we want Scott, we want Scott. Norwood took the podium and he said this to the fans who were gathered. He said, I know that I have never felt more love than I do right now. Expected rejection, expected condemnation, but he found grace. And that's what happens to us. Sometimes we feel like God is going to be angry with us when we confess our sin to him, when we come to him with our problems, with our brokenness. But when we come to him, he accepts us, he welcomes us, he rejoices with us. Luke chapter 15, verse 10 says, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's a God of great grace who welcomes us, who invites us into his presence and gives us the power and the strength to become more like his son. It's easier to condemn than it is to change, but Jesus changes everything. Some of us here are here today and maybe we're in need of a big change. We're in need of a heart change. We've never come to a place in our lives where we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe we've done some good things. Maybe we've even gone to church. But we haven't been living for Christ. We haven't come to a place where we've turned from the direction we're going and put in our faith and trust in Christ. If that's the case for you, 
just like the prodigal son who was welcomed home. We come back to God. When we turn to him, when we trust in him and what he's done for us on the cross, he'll change everything for us. And if you'd like to do that, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards, how you can enter into relationship with Christ. But others of us are here, and maybe we're believers. We have a new heart. We've been changed by the gospel. But there's areas of our life that have been keeping us from following Christ, that have been hindering our relationship with Christ. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think that probably applies to just about all of us. I think we all have things in our life that are keeping us from following after Christ. And maybe we need to do some business with God. Maybe we need to acknowledge the things in our hearts that are broken and invite him into those situations. And so I'd encourage you, uh, maybe when, the song, when Joel is playing in just a couple minutes or maybe this afternoon when you have some time, to just do business with God. And invite him into those situations in your life where there's brokenness. It's easier to condemn than it is to change. But Jesus truly can change everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that while we may be quick to condemn... You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that when we repent, when we turn from our sins and turn to you and invite you into our life, that you forgive us and that you give us the power to change, that you put your people around us to encourage us in that regard, that you give us your Holy Spirit to empower us. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. God, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, who's never had a relationship with you. God, I pray that today would be a new day for them, that they would enter into a relationship with you that starts now and ends to end and never ends. God, I pray for all the rest of us. God, I pray that we would have hearts that are undivided, hearts that are fully devoted to you, and that we will repent and turn from anything that's keeping us from following you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.